Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at Cato. And I'd like to welcome you to a book forum today on a very interesting new book, new book entitled Libertarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know by our author Jason Brennan. Uh, as you may know, if you've come to a book forum before, we generally, uh, these last for about an hour and a half, for the first 50 minutes to an hour, we will hear from our author and a couple of commentators about this new book, and then you will have a chance to do question and answers in which you can ask your ideas uh, and questions about the book and uh, get some responses from the authors. Um, and also, I, I would say uh, after, thereafter, we will be able to go to lunch, and I'll have some more to tell you about that as we go to near the end of the forum today. Uh, in thinking about uh, our, our book today, there's a lot of things that could be said. One thing that always strikes me is uh, something about libertarianism and public policy. The Pew Forum, which, as you may know, is a public uh, policy group here in Washington that does surveys and one thing or another, extensive surveys. Uh, just finished up with the presidential elections. But one of the things they do that is interesting and both confounding, I think, in many ways, is they occasionally in their polls, they ask people, how, do you, how does this term strike you? What, what, do you approve of this or do you disapprove? Do you have a positive reaction or a negative reaction? Terms like civil rights, civil liberties, capitalism, and so on, socialism. Well, one of the terms they've asked about for the last few years is the term libertarianism. And I'm here to tell you what they found. Did you know, did you ever wonder what people thought when, about libertarianism? Well, they, they break it down. Republicans, 44% of Republicans have a negative response to the term libertarianism. 31% have a positive response. Uh, on the Democratic side, among Democrats, 39% have a positive response, and 37% have a negative response. Among independents, they're, they're almost the flip side of the Republicans. They have people who identify as independents, have 44% positive and 32% negative. So overall, it's a divided world out there. 38% of all uh, people have a positive response to the term libertarianism, and uh, 37% have a negative response, according to Pew. So the real question here then is posed, as you might think, is, well, what does libertarianism mean? What, are the, what is in these people's heads? What are they responding to when they say they have either a positive or a negative uh, vision or uh, response to the term libertarianism? And here at Cato, and, and after all, the Cato Institute is, and we take some pride in this, is the major uh, English-speaking think tank that is there to try to propagate and to advance the cause of liberty, and then with that, the cause of libertarianism. We, we take some pride in trying to think about what do people think of it and to give them a proper idea of what libertarian is, it, libertarianism is and how it can affect public policy in meaningful ways. So it's with some uh, interest that we, when Jason Brennan said, you know, I got a new book coming out, would you like to do a book forum on it? Uh, and particularly a book that goes to the question of what is libertarianism. Uh, I was very receptive and so here we are today. So we'll first hear from Jason about his new book. Uh, 
Jason, who took his PhD in 2007 from the University of Arizona, is Assistant Professor of Ethics, Economics, and Public Policy at Georgetown University here in town. Formerly, he was an Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Research at Brown University. He specializes in political philosophy and applied ethics. Along with uh, libertarianism, his new book, he's widely uh, published, uh, and particularly with books, uh, he wrote uh, a forum we had earlier, a book we had a forum for earlier, The Ethics of Voting. We might want to, I don't know how many people decided not to vote yesterday uh, for ethical reasons, but we might talk about that. Uh, and with David Schmitz, uh, he also wrote a book, A Brief History of Liberty, in 2010. He's currently writing a book on a, a fascinating topic, compulsory voting for and against, and you can guess his position on that, I would imagine. Uh, which will be is now under contract, and we'll probably have another book form that you can come back to on that. Please welcome Jason Brennan. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really glad to ha uh, be here today to talk to you about this. I'll tell you a little bit about the story behind this book. Um, it wasn't something I was planning to write, but an editor at Oxford contacted me and said, I see libertarianism as a growing movement in American political thought. I see it as a wave. I see it with the rise of the Tea Party, with explicitly libertarian politi uh, 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 politicians, with the appeal that someone like um, Paul has among the young. And it's time for someone to have a good scholarly talk about what that is, but written for a popular audience, written for everybody. So let me talk today about what I see libertarianism as. And before we get into that, what do the critics think it is? What's their view? And there's a story that you get about libertarianism for most academics, and they don't mean to paint a cartoon of it. They mean to do it justice, but nevertheless, they do, in fact, paint it as a cartoon. And the way the story goes is like this. Libertarians are people who axiomatically assume that everyone has very extensive rights of self-ownership. They don't have much of an argument for this. They just sort of assume it because it seems plausible to them. From this, they build up a number of ideas. You get the idea, if you have an absolute right of self-ownership, then you have an absolute right to acquire property in the external world, and this cannot be challenged for more or less any reason except maybe to avoid disaster. And from that, you get the conclusion that you must have minimal government or no government. A good example, and probably the person who's at fault for making this the popular view of libertarians, is a Marxist philosopher at Oxford, uh, recently deceased Jerry Cohen, who wrote a book called Self-Ownership, uh, Freedom and Equality, a critique of Robert Nozick's Anarchy State Utopia. An interesting fact about this book is that the word self-ownership appears exactly once in Robert Nozick's book, and it appears on basically every page of Jerry Cohen's. That might tell you something about the accuracy of the critique. When you, Brian Barry, uh, who's known for being curmudgeonly and not very nice to people who disagrees with him, has the following to say about libertarians, in particular the famous political philosopher Robert Nozick. He says, Robert Nozick proposes to starve or humiliate 10% or so of his fellow citizens, if even recognizes that term, by eliminating all transfer payments for the state, leaving the sick, the old, the disabled, mothers with young children, with no breadwinner, and so on, at the tender mercies of private charity, given in the whim and pleasure of the donors, and on any terms they choose to propose. Jeffrey Sachs says, for libertarians, compassion, justice, civic responsibility, honesty, decency, humility, and even the very survival of the poor, weak and vulnerable, are all to take a backseat to liberty. What's the message here? Libertarians are crazy people. They're people who think liberty matters and it's the only thing that matters. Liberty though the sky falls. Liberty though we're all doomed. We must respect liberty and nothing else. Is that right? And that seems to be what the critics think. The view is libertarians hold that the little people don't matter. I mean, you remember the scene in uh, Dirty Dancing where someone pulls out an Ayn Rand novel and says little people don't matter. That's the message. 
Uh, hooray for selfishness. Libertarians are people who, you know, are, like what is to be libertarian is to be really obsessed with making sure nobody touches this. This is mine. Leave it alone. Get your hands off my wallet. <coughs> hooray for big business. You know, we're out there to make sure that Apple doesn't get taxed. Uh, and also, libertarians are crazy about markets. Markets work perfectly all the time. We won't listen to anyone who says otherwise. So in short, what are libertarians? They're mean, impractical, over overly cynical, and at the same time, overly utopian, selfish ideologues. That's what the critics think. Right? That's, when I see the critics, I'm just like puzzled by that. Because my first encounter with libertarianism wasn't with the foaming-at-the-mouth sorts of libertarians, and there are some out there. Maybe, maybe there are some here today. I don't know, so I'll <laughs> one of them. Uh, it was with this book, Henry Hazlitt's famous book, Economics in One Lesson. And what it really was was a lesson on ideological responsibility. The message was, whenever you're thinking about policy matters, whenever you're thinking about economics, you have a bias to look at the immediate direct effects of a government policy or any other policy in a small group of people. You have a bias to ignore the unforeseen consequences, the long-term effects, or the effects on people that are not sort of directly affected, the sort of indirect effects. If you're going to be smart about this, you need to look into all of these things and weigh them appropriately. You know, and really, uh, he's just regurgitating and rehashing the message of Frederick Bastiat um, back in the 1800s from this famous article, or um, I say, The Seen and the Unseen, right? And to kind of carry this over into modern-day things, when you take a typical microeconomics textbook, it'll often say there's a market failure, the market under these conditions is going to fail to reach full efficiency, and government can correct the problem. When they say that, though, what they mean is more or less an omniscient angel can correct the problem because they kind of stipulate that the government in question is competent to do what to fix the problem and also that it ha like the people in the government will be willing to fix the problem, that they will use the power to, in good faith rather than for own their, their own purposes. But in the real world, we don't get to stipulate that. In the real world, we don't get to stipulate that governments are like that, that they're always fully competent or that they always act in good faith. And that makes all the difference in what we want government to do. So I see... Smart libertarians are people who say there's market success and there's government success, and we have to weigh those. And there's market failure and there's government failure, and we have to weigh those. And you know what? Smart people on the left, that's like their view too. It's just a disagreement about what the ultimate weight comes down to, and that's largely empirical. So to get into that way, my way of thinking about this, I'll ask you a question. When you're evaluating a hammer, what do you think makes a hammer good or bad? How would you judge a hammer to be a good one? What do you think? Anyone want to give me a shot at this? This is a good hammer. What makes it a good hammer? Yeah, it's going to be well-balanced, right? You don't want it to be too heavy in the handle. What else? Yeah, it functions well, right? It serves some sort of purpose. There's a thing that hammers are meant to do. So if I had a hammer that was, like, didn't pound in nails, but for some reason whenever I tried to pound in a nail, it made my teeth cleaner, it wouldn't be a good hammer, though it would have some sort of weird properties, right? Hammers have a purpose, and we judge them by how well they serve that purpose. What about a painting like the Mona Lisa? What makes the Mona Lisa valuable? Right. One thing is just a lot of people really like it. Right? It's just it's a subjective thing. People like art, and a lot of them like it. Why do they like it? Why do people find it valuable? Why is it worth so much money? What else? It's, not, it's rare. It's uncommon. That's part of it. Though, you know, if I were to make a Mona Lisa like copy, it would be the only Jay Brennan copy in existence, and that wouldn't be rare. But like, <laughs> there are some things that are made more expensive by being rare. What else? You know, because it's made by Leonardo da Vinci, it's like who the author is of it. Uh, if we found out that this wasn't actually a da Vinci painting, the value of it would drop dramatically, uh, and so on. What about a person, another human being? What makes that person valuable? 
Well, here, I mean, in the interest of time, I'll give you some answers that my students will give when I ask them this question. Say, so, look, people can be valuable the way hammers are. Like, the person at the lunch counter who makes me a sandwich is useful to me. They can be valuable the way a painting is, I suppose, because we're all precious snowflakes and rare and unique. But also, people are ends in themselves. And that's something that's kind of different as what human beings as opposed to a hammer. All right. What, which is the best way model for these for evaluating institutions? When we're evaluating the rules of the game that we live by, when we're evaluating the norms and the rules and the institutions we live by, well, how do we evaluate them? Right, do we think of them as being like hammers? Do we think of them as being like paintings? We care about who made them and nothing else? Or do we care about thinking of them as being persons as ends in themselves? My view is this. Institutions are like hammers. We predominantly judge them by how functional they are. And so my view is that if an institution helps us to live together in peace and <coughs> prosperity, if it helps us to maximize our ability to be authors of our own lives, then it's a good institution. And institutions that fail to do this, regardless of what they symbolize, regardless of the intentions of the people who support them, regardless of uh, who voted for them, give us little reasons to preserve them. And I really think intentions are kind of irrelevant. Uh, the, you know, the Catholic Church for a long time mandated just price laws. The goal of these laws was to protect the poor. The actual effect was to harm the poor. And they, didn't, they meant well, it just didn't work. So my goal in libertarianism is to eliminate the caricature. It's to eliminate the cartoon view. I'm not trying to make, convince people to be libertarian. Um, I'm just trying to make libertarianism seem reasonable to skeptics. I also want to show that there is a diversity of thought within libertarianism. It's not all one thing. There's class, what I call classical liberals, what I call hard libertarians, what I call neoclassical liberals. Uh, and there's a lot of diversity and disagreement within those camps about what justifies different institutions and what things they will end up advocating in the first place. And in particular, I want to show that libertarianism, contrary to the caricature, is a humane philosophy. And even if you think it's wrong, and you're free to do that, even if you think they're mistaken about how things work, I want you to realize that it's a humane philosophy. The people who advocate it normally do so for humane reasons. Right? And to some degree, I want to put the left in the defensive. I want to say, if you care about the poor, how come you're a Democrat? Right? If you care about the poor, how come you're so Marxist? So the format of the book, as the format of all the books in this series, the What Everyone Needs to Know series, is to divide into chapters with a bunch of different uh, topics and then ask questions and then just answer those questions. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today, and how much, how much more time do I have at this point, do you think? 11 minutes. 11 minutes. What I want to talk about today, then, are some of the misconceptions that people have about libertarians. I put up nine of them. I probably won't get to them all. Um, but just to kind of correct some of these misconceptions. So misconception one is a deeply philosophical misconception. It's that libertarians only care about negative liberty. Philosophers, when they talk about liberty, they say there's a lot of different definitions out there, but they broadly separate what we call negative and positive liberty. Negative liberty is the absence of interference. Right? You have negative liberty when people or objects or other things aren't interfering with you or putting up obstacles in your way. Positive liberty is the presence of powers or abilities. So a Marxist might say positive liberty is the power to achieve your ends. And people might say money increases your positive liberty because it improves your ability to achieve your ends. Or you might say Superman has the positive liberty to fly and I don't. Now, there's a view that libertarians only care about negative liberty. They just want to make sure that we are not interfered with. They don't care about positive liberty, the actual ability to achieve our ends. And there's a thought that if you do care about positive liberty, if you do think it's important that people not only not be interfered with, but be, have the ability to achieve their goals, then you should be a socialist or advocate um, government sort of intervention or government redistribution. What's underlying that? I think part of that is what I call a direct governmentalist bias. The thought is if we think government's job is to promote liberty and 
part of what it is to be free is to have positive liberty, it follows that we should have an extensive welfare state that makes sure and guarantees that everybody have uh, positive liberty so described. But that doesn't follow. From these normative premises about what you want society to achieve, no particular institutional thing follows from that because it depends upon empirical questions about how government actually functions. The problem here has to do with the logic of guarantees. A government guarantee, a legal guarantee, is no real guarantee. It may or may not work. There's a difference between guaranteeing in the sense of making inevitable, as when an economist <coughs> says that quadrupling the, middle, uh, the minimum wage will make it inevitable that we'll have rising unemployment, versus expressing a firm commitment to produce some end, as when George W. Bush guaranteed that no child will be left behind. All right. Another misconception is that libertarians care only about liberty. And that's what you saw with Jeffrey Sachs. Everything takes a backseat to liberty. It's just not true. If you look at the arguments and justifications for, the, for their institutions libertarians give, they have normal kind of common sense moral intuitions, and they're trying to base their arguments on those intuitions. You know, most people, if you ask them, hey, do you think people should be free to do what they want if they're minding their own business? They'll say yes. <coughs> libertarians just say, well, what if while well, minding their own business and not hurting anybody, they're also snorting some cocaine? Are they allowed to do that? And then most people go, oh, no, no, no. But libertarians say they want to extend that idea. Most people have the idea that you shouldn't push other people around, that you shouldn't attack them or rape them or slap them or make them kind of conscript them into your own personal projects. Libertarians extend those moral intuitions to talk about what they think government should do or what they think we can do to one another. Um, really, if libertarians cared only about liberty, most of what they write would be irrelevant. A good example of this would be uh, Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which I talked about before. Uh, Thomas Nagel, a famous philosopher at NYU, says... Oh, you know, Nozick's argument against the welfare state is just that it violates self-ownership, right? If that were true, Nozick's book would be like two pages long. It takes like two pages to establish that. It's not two pages long. It's hundreds of pages long. He spends lots of time trying to argue that the welfare state doesn't work the way people think or that certain justifications people give for it aren't well-grounded and so on, right? If he really were this cartoon, he wouldn't spend so much time thinking about these other kinds of values, Libertarians say we're not faced with a choice between a free or a humane society. Their argument, whether they're right or wrong, is that a free society is the way to have a humane society. That if you care about these other kinds of values, liberty is the means for achieving that. Another misconception is that libertarians glorify selfishness. And yet, some do. Ayn Rand does, right? And, but she's kind of not the norm. She's not the typical libertarian, at least as far as I can tell. But even for Ayn Rand, though, she has an esoteric, kind of bizarre conception of, self, of what it is to be selfish, a conception under which it can never be in your interest to harm another person who's not deserving, to steal from another person for your own benefit and that kind of thing. So she has a weird view of self-interest. Self but in fact, libertarians don't have any unusual views about selfishness. They, most libertarians think you should be charitable. Most people, libertarians think that you should provide for others under some circumstances. And really, libertarianism demands a kind of unselfishness. Most of us are moral busybodies. We want to regulate and control how other people live. We want to mess around in their business. And libertarians say, live and let live. Now, critics of uh, liberal philosophy in general, not just libertarianism, often say, that's not such an undemanding thing. Like, you're just saying, live and let live. How can that be an ideal? The thing is, it's extremely demanding. Most people don't want to live and let live. It's very hard for people to let go. So in fact, when you say live and let live, you're asking people to do something that the overwhelming majority of them don't want to do. Another misconception is that libertarians are unusually selfish. That's what uh, uh, Benson, a former speechwriter for George W. Bush, said, oh, libertarians become libertarian as adolescents because adolescents are self-centered and selfish, and it's a selfish, uh, self-centered philosophy. Like, well, where's the evidence? 
right? In principle, psychologists could study this and test this to see if libertarians are unusually selfish. And as far as they have, there's just not any evidence that, that they are any different. I think what's, what's going on here is that people, especially all those on the left, often assume that their preferred institutional uh, arrangements are the only sensible expression of benevolence, right? Um, and, you know, one, some people have claimed that people who support free markets um, provide more for charity than people who don't. And some of that research is, uh, is controversial, and it may or may not be true. But when you see that, when you see, like, I, I, for one, give more to charity than most of my friends on the left. And when I ask them why they don't give more to charity, they'll often say, and perhaps they're being honest, that they think that charities don't work. Now, when I say that, I don't, I don't go, oh, you must be unusually selfish in response. I say, I can see what you mean. You're not willing to throw money at a cure that you think won't actually fix the disease. You, know, you regard it as a false cure, and you're not willing to throw money at it. That's perfectly sensible if it's true. But now that I'm being kind of nice to you about that, you might in turn be nice to other people who don't advocate some of the institutions you advocate. If libertarians aren't willing to throw money at certain things the left regards as a cure, but libertarians regard as a false cure, that doesn't mean they don't care about the disease. Besides, advocacy is cheap. If I were to come on here today and say, I advocate having 90% tax rates on everybody who makes over $100,000 a year, that doesn't actually increase my taxes. Right? It doesn't actually make a difference in what I pay. Advocacy is nothing. Talk is cheap. To say that you know, when you advocate a certain position, you can get the warm glow of that position without ever ha actually incurring a cost upon yourself. Uh, along with this, we might ask, does exposure to markets actually make us more selfish? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but people have done experiments on this, and the answer is no. In fact, economists like to play games where people get the opportunity to cheat one another or lie for real money, and what they find is the single greatest predictor that you will be cooperative and not be a cheater in these games is how market-oriented your society is. The more market-oriented your society, the more cooperative you are. Why? Because people from market societies are used to putting themselves into one another's shoes and used to having to make deals and cooperate with others. Another misconception is that libertarians are just out to help big business. Critics say that libertarianism is freedom for the rich, freedom for co uh, corporations, and servility and servitude for everybody else. Right? Really? Libertarians are the most vocal critics of corporate subsidies, corporate privileges, special contracts, and corporate welfare. Public choice economics, the part of a branch of economics that deals with this, is predominantly like, like uh, uh, composed of libertarians. Libertarians are the ones saying, let General Motors die. Right? I, I think we should reverse this. My view is that I want to say to the left, look, corporatism is your fault. Like you, the left, the progressive left, have actually held a lot of power in the United States in the past 100 years. And when you get this power, what you do is do things that help corporations seize power and control other people. Right? When you have a political system that can choose winners and losers in the economy, the well-connected and the rich are going to take advantage of that and be the winners. I think through the Democratic Party, corporations and the financial elite capture power for themselves. To see how this might work, imagine a magical world, this an analogy, a magical world in which there's a crime problem, a problem with violent crime. But in this world, whenever you give more guns to the police, the criminals in turn seize those guns from the police and use them against them and everybody else. In that kind of world, where that whenever you give more guns to the police, the criminals take them, you wouldn't want to arm the police more. Arming the police would be the same thing as arming the criminals. I think that... Uh, uh, when it comes to uh, corporate power, we live in that kind of world. And I'm not going to try to prove this to you today, but when we try to increase government control over the economy, corporations in turn seize that for themselves. Right? So the debate here is we, we see the problem of crony capitalism, and the left says corporations have too much power, so let's increase government power over corporations. 
seems sensible, but it might backfire. If we live in that world where uh, you know, it might be the, exactly the opposite thing to do, libertarians say, corporations have too much power. Let's decrease government power over corporations. All right, I'm going to skip ahead to a couple other things. Another misconception, and one that's kind of dear to my heart, is that libertarians don't care about social justice. And many of them explicitly say that they don't. I think they're actually wrong about their own philosophy. I think many of them are committed to social justice. They just don't like to use the word. What is the basic idea of social justice? The idea is that under normal conditions, coercive social institutions, including property rights and other rights, have to be sufficiently to every innocent person's benefit so that it's reasonable to demand that people comply with those institutions. If you're saying that people should respect your property, you're making a moral demand of them. And if property institutions were just completely to their disadvantage, they had no hope in the world because of those institutions, it would be unreasonable to make that demand. Do libertarians agree? Some of them explicitly agree, and others kind of implicitly agree. I mean, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations forever changed economic analysis because he said that the way you measure the wealth of nations is not by looking at the size of the king's treasury, but by looking at the opportunities available to the common person and how full his children's stomachs are. Right? Why would libertarians focus on arguing that free markets work and are good for the poor and so on if they didn't actually think it mattered from a moral point of view? Why bother argue the welfare state doesn't work if you really are just this cartoon self-ownership person who thinks the only thing wrong with it is that it violates libertarian uh, absolute property rights in the self? I mean, even Ayn Rand, of all people, acts like this. Ayn Rand goes out of her way and Atlas Shrugged to try to, to try to show that, look, under these kinds of bad institutions, her superhuman, super genius people, they, they come out okay, they're fine, but it's the weak people, the small people, who really get hurt in the end. Right? If, she didn't, if she didn't care about that, why would she even bother say that? Is it just a little, like, oh, you, you the left care about this. I don't. They could be crushed for all I care. I don't think so. I think it's because most libertarians actually do care about the poor, and they actually do care about social justice. I think the difference here is um, you know, libertarians think that when it comes to escaping poverty, if you really want to make sure that the, the poor do well, the important thing is to make sure these lines keep going up is to keep making sure that we have more economic opportunity. The idea is, if you want to make sure that the poor are doing well, you want to make it so that everyone is so rich that they can always walk away from a bad deal. And that's the thing that really matters in the long run. All right. I'm going to end with one last misconception. And I think it's an important one that libertarians get away from, because I think it really harms their cause. And that's the misconception that the USA is the most libertarian country. Now, in terms of people who are explicitly self-identified as libertarians, yes, the USA is the most libertarian in that sense. In the sense of uh, the most, using the most libertarian rhetoric, the USA is the most libertarian in that sense. But talking the libertarian talk is not walking the libertarian walk. Right? So a number of different institutes have tried to measure economic freedom and civil liberties. When they try to measure economic freedom, they tend to find the US is not really all that high. The Fraser Institute recently did a, uh, uh, just a couple months ago, put out its new rankings, and the US is only in the top 20. I mean, so it's only like number 18 when it comes to total economic freedom. Far behind Denmark and Ireland and others. Even the country of Denmark, which we often in the US call socialist, one of those socialist Scandinavian countries, on almost every measure, business freedom, investment freedom, financial freedom, labor freedom, and so on, it trounces the US. It's getting scores in the 90s, and the Heritage Institute gives them similar scores. The US is getting scores in the 70s. It really gets dinged because it has a well-functioning welfare state. 
But I think you should separate the idea of the administrative state, which controls everything in the economy, from the social insurance state, which provides social insurance. And really, for libertarians, it's the former that's really, really bad from their point of view. That's the thing that's really interfering with people's ability to be responsible self-owners. Some of them are kind of amenable to the welfare state, at least if it works, and it does seem to work very well in Denmark. Um, when it comes to civil liberties, you can say the same kind of thing. I mean, the U.S. has had some progress. I mean, a couple of states just legalized marijuana. A number of states just uh, legalized same-sex marriage. But there's also a lot of things we do that are very bad from a civil liberties point of view. I mean, we claim the right to assassinate citizens without due process. We bomb innocent Pakistani children in the name of a war on terror and so on. The reason it's important to say the U.S. is not the most libertarian country from a libertarian point of view is you don't get stuck having to apologize for all the bad things that the U.S. does. And there's often a tactic, a rhetorical tactic, to say, look, there's this bad stuff going on in the U.S., the U.S. is the most libertarian, therefore libertarianism is awful. But really, like Canada, Switzerland, Denmark, Australia, New Zealand, these are much more libertarian countries than the United States. So from a libertarian point of view, you should be celebrating their successes rather than trying to apologize for all the bad stuff America does as if it's libertarianism's fault. All right, so thank you very much. A, l a lot to pursue there in the question and answer session. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Jerry. Our first commentator today will be my colleague Aaron Ross Powell. Aaron is a research fellow and editor of libertarianism.org. That's libertarianism.org. I encourage you to go there if you want to see Ayn Rand in reality, along with a number of other people, including George Smith, uh, a great stock of actual speeches about libertarianism, and a lot of new writing about libertarianism. That's libertarianism.org, very good place to learn more about libertarianism. Uh, and also it has scholarship, theory, and history. Uh, Aaron's writing has appeared in Liberty and the Cato Journal. He earned a uh, law degree from the University of Denver, and he will comment today for us. Please welcome Aaron Ross Powell. Thank you, John, and thank you to Jason for writing this really excellent book. As I was reading it, we on libertarianism.org, we have reading lists, and I spend a lot of time thinking about what books to recommend to people on various topics, what books to include in these short lists. And so when I read Jason's book, I went back and compared it to the other short general audiences, introductions to libertarianism that have come out fairly recently, things like our own David Bowes' Libertarianism of Primer and Charles Murray's What It Means to Be a Libertarian, Ron Paul's Liberty Defined, Jeff Myron's Libertarianism A to Z, and so on. And all of these books... Jason's included, are, are quite good at serving an audience of people brand new to libertarianism. So this could be either people who are already libertarians and want to kind of fill in the details, or people who aren't libertarians but want to learn a little bit about it. And so for those people, these books cover the theory, the, the background philosophy in which the policies are based. A lot of them focus a lot on the policies. In some cases, they deal with the history. So they, these make new libertarians better libertarians. But it struck me as I was reading it and that Jason's book really was best for a, a different audience, uh, which was people who are quite critical of libertarianism. These are people who, have, who know a little bit about it, have heard of it, and I guess misunderstand it enough to think it's probably the worst idea ever. Um, so, so these are people, when, when I discuss libertarianism with them, these are the people I hear these gotchas from. And, and Jason mentioned several of these kinds of gotchas, like 
why is liberty all you care about? Um, or they'll, you know, isn't immigration ruining this country? And or what will you do about the roads? Uh, and and so what I what I liked about his book is the the format of everything is is a question and then a short couple of page very direct answer is that so many of these questions that he asks are these gotchas, uh, and and so I think I think that this makes it particularly good for the critics because if you're if you're critical of an idea, a a book about it you're not immediately going to read it sympathetically and chances are you're not going to read it carefully, um, and so well these these gotchas are answered in, in many of these other books I mentioned, the, the answers are part of a broader narrative, and so you have to look for them, whereas Jason forces you to address them front and center. He says, you think you've got a gotcha, here's my answer for it. I, I also like that this book is so philosophy-focused, because one of the things that happens when you're discussing things with non-libertarians is they'll dispute your data. So if you're arguing policy and you're saying capitalism has improved, uh, you know, has reduce poverty by this amount, uh, then they'll say, no, it hasn't. The, the data doesn't support what you say, and then you're forced to both go look it up. Um, but if you, if you just focus on the, pol on the philosophy, if you peel it back to just the foundations, those sorts of rejoinders don't work as well. And so it kind of forces the critic to really engage with these ideas mm -hmm. instead of just assuming the numbers are wrong. So I, I think that the benefit of this book, then, is that it, it should lead I mean, I hope it converts people to libertarian, to libertarianism, and I, I hope it makes new libertarians better libertarians, but I think that it, it could also serve to make arguments with non-libertarians better arguments by, by getting these, these issues out of the way first. I did have a couple of concerns with the book. Um, that Part of it is that I think that Jason has a tendency in this to act as if most libertarians or, or libertarianism in general is the neoclassical form or, or the bleeding hearts as they're, they're often called. So he, as he, he mentioned he distinguishes in the book three kinds of libertarianism. He says there's the, neo or there's the classical liberals who tend to take an economics approach, a, a consequentialist approach, this would be people like Milton Friedman. Then there's the, the hard libertarians, this would be Rand, Rothbard, Nozick, and they they take a, a rights-based approach often, a deontological approach, and they're the you know, liberty-first people. And then finally, there's the neoclassicals or the bleeding hearts who seem to look often a bit more like the hard in the sense of arguing from rights and from the nature of you know, what's important to people, but they, they put this social justice on it. And in, in a, at a lot of points of the book, he will be careful and say, Classical liberals believe this, hard libertarians believe this, neoclassical liberals believe this. But I caught on more than one occasion he would make claims that libertarians believe this when in fact it felt more like he was talking about neoclassicals. Uh, this, I, I noticed something similar when he, he mentions very briefly abortion. And in, in a list of women's rights, things that libertarians believe women have a right to, he just he lists, he says, libertarians advocate women's reproductive freedom, including the right to abortion, and so on. And while it is true that a great many, if not most, libertarians do are pro-choice, it, it feels as if he's arguing that pro-choice flows necessarily from libertarian philosophy. And I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, if you, if you believe that there is a human right to life, and then you happen to believe that an unborn child is a human with those rights, then it would follow that it's, it's a violation of that right to 
abort the, the fetus. And that argument may be wrong, of course. Uh, we, could, we could attack it on a number of levels, but it, it's not necessarily an anti-libertarian argument. Uh, so, so I guess I wish that he had occasionally been a bit clearer how, on how controversial some of the views that he advanced as libertarianism are within the broader field of libertarianism. Uh, I, I mean, this could be, there could be a tactical reason for doing this, a valuable tactical reason, which is if you, if you think that the, that the primary audience, the people who are going to read this book are going to be more progressive, more on the political left, then it would make sense to present to them a form of libertarianism that's going to be most palatable to them. So they're less likely to reject it outright. And so for those people, the, the social justice of the bleeding hearts plays a lot better than the negative liberty or bust of, say, the hard libertarians. I, now, I, I wanted to mention what I thought he, at one point in the book, he addresses what I think is a, an interesting criticism that is leveled at libertarians, and I wanted to expand a bit on it. Uh, he, he talks about the idea that libertarians are anti-community, or that he, he says, he answers it, the question is, are, liber- is, are libertarians individualists? And in answering it, he points out that many on the left and the right, what we might call statists, for lack of a better term, tend to see libertarians as anti-community. And so what I want to do is talk about a, what might be a fourth kind of libertarianism, a fourth sort of argument for libertarianism that, that addresses that issue head on. And I, I should mention briefly that these, these kinds of libertarianism, the three that he mentions and this, this fourth one that I'm bringing up, Aren't, aren't mutually exclusive. And, and so oftentimes the differences between them aren't about disagreements on the fundamentals. They're on the, the kind of argument you choose to emphasize for libertarianism, which is actually good for, for us because if, if it turns out that consequentialist arguments lead to libertarianism and rights-based arguments lead to libertarianism and arguments about what's best for the poor or institutional structure lead to libertarianism, <coughs> then we're better off than if there's just one path to it. Uh, so what I want to talk about is, is the, the difference between the harm from government and the harm from politics. Uh, all these books do a good job of pointing out the harm that government does to us. So government harms us by taking from us. It, it takes away our wealth. It takes away our liberties. It takes away our independence. It sometimes takes away our lives. But if it were the case that government worked perfectly, so if, if the policies that government created were exactly the policies I would apply to my own life, even in the absence of government, and if it institute those policies without any inefficiencies, without any errors, then these, these arguments against the harm from government would, would disappear unless we had just took a principled stand against government in and of itself, which many libertarians do, but certainly most libertarians do not. But even if we got rid of the harms of government, even if we had perfect government, politics would remain. And that's because in a pluralistic society, we all have varying ways we choose to live our own lives, varying preferences, the, the life paths we want to take differ, which is good. Uh, but, but what that means is that this disagreement can appear within politics. So we could, we could, potentially, we could define politics as, as the moving of decisions about the paths we're going to take in our life from the private sphere, from individual choices, choices within the family, voluntary associations, and moving them into the public sphere, where they're determined by our fellow citizens via voting, via representation, and then forced the, the, the choices are forced upon us. We have to live by these decisions. Um, and 
And so this, this ends up getting into the, the community issue, because what, what politics does is politics is deeply harmful to community. Uh, so it, it, what it does is it, it ends up undermining the, the characteristics that are necessary for a good life and a good community. So a, a good community, we could say, is one that's, that's caring, that's respectful, where we have goodwill towards each other. It's, it's an organization, it's a group that we want to be a part of. And for that to function, what we need are virtuous citizens. We need people who have internalized and lived these values of respect and goodwill and caring. Um, but the, the problem is that politics ends up promoting vice. It, it does this by taking all those life choices that we might have and reducing them down to a finite, often two choices, and we're going to pick one or we're going to pick the other. So I may want to teach my kids one set of things in school. You may want to teach your kids one thing. I may want to eat a certain kind of food or have a certain kind of light bulb. You may want another. Uh, and and in, when these are private decisions, we can all just choose our own way and kind of ignore each other. But if it's politics, we, we put those into the public arena and then we're stuck with it. And what this does is it forces us to care deeply about politics, much more than we really should, because politics is what's going to determine the path that we get to take in life. And then that ends up turning what would otherwise be neighbors into rivals. We, we can't just kind of live and let live. We have to engage in conflict with the people in our community. It, in a sense, politics is making us look like sports fans, where we have our team and we want the other team to lose. It's a zero-sum game. If my team wins, your team has to lose. But in sports, those, those rivalries are fun. And I may take joy in the, the suffering of the fans of the opposing team, but I don't really dislike those people. And we all get over it, and then the next season starts and we move on. But in politics, the stakes really matter. And so those rivalries become central to our lives and become more central the bigger politics gets and the more questions about our lives move into the political sphere. And so politics also ends up incentivizing Manichaean thinking. I mean, it, one of the striking things about this election this was the rhetoric that Obama and Romney represented vastly different choices for the future of the country, that, that Obama represents socialism, and Romney represents anarchism, um, and which is, I mean, is, is absolutely absurd because there's very little daylight between these two. But <laughs> the problem is if you're trying to get people out there to vote for your guy, you can't tell them there's very little daylight. You can't say, yeah, these guys are pretty much the same. You have to convince them that they're wildly different. And that ends up, and part of that is that you convince them that not only are they, they different in their opinions, but they're, they're evil. They're out to destroy America. And so therefore, they're supporters who are our neighbors. They're the people that we live with, the people we want to be in a community with, are out to destroy us and our livelihood. And so it turns, politics ends up turning these minor differences, you know, are, is Medicare spending going to grow at 2% or 3% or, you know, taxes going to be at, you know, 30% or 34% into apocalyptic battles between virtue and vice. And when you couple this with, with in-group preferences that we all have and motivated reasoning where we, we look for data that supports our own views, it, politics ends up encouraging us to outright hate each other and for, for really silly reasons. It's, it makes us behave in a way that no virtuous person would ever behave. 
And if, if the way that we become virtuous is by behaving virtuously, we internalize these things, then, then being forced to live in a society that's forcing us to be vicious, forcing us to hate each other, is going to change our character. And so it's going to make, it's, it's going to hurt us and it's going to hurt the community. And I don't, I don't think we can fix politics either because these problems are inherent in political decision-making. We can't just put the right guys in charge. We can't just get more people involved in voting. Um, we can't say, oh, well, you should vote and you shouldn't vote because the issue is simply that we are making decisions politically instead of privately. So the only solution to this, therefore, is to limit the sphere of politics, is to limit the choices that are made politically and make more of them privately, which to, to effectively abandon politics to the greatest extent possible, which is libertarianism. Libertarianism is giving people more choices about their own lives and enabling them to live the kinds of lives they want while keeping the state and therefore the, the interests of the fellow citizens from forcing its will upon them. So I, I think that it's important that we remember that not only does government harm us, but politics harms us, that politics actively makes us worse. So I'll, just, I'll close by saying that I, I really did, I enjoyed Jason's book immensely. I think it does a terrific job of addressing the common questions raised by non-libertarians and libertarians alike, and it deals with those, those ever-present gotchas. Uh, it, it should make new libertarians better libertarians, and it should make non-libertarians a whole lot more fun to argue. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Our next commentator is, I believe, for the first time participating in our Cato event, which is great. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Thomas W. Merrill is an assistant professor in the Department of Government in the School of Public Affairs at American University. He is uh, completing a manuscript entitled Hume's Socratism and has co-edited two volumes, Human Dignity and Bioethics, which appeared with the University of Notre Dame Press, and Apples of Gold and Pictures of Silver Honoring the Work of Leon R. Cass, Lexington Books. Uh, he was a senior research analyst at the President's Council on Bioethics and was recently the Steve Forbes Visiting Fellow in the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, John, and thanks to Cato for uh, having me here, and thanks to Jason for a great book that I applaud and endorse and recommend that you go out and buy right this minute so that he can get that 35 uh, tenths of a penny that will uh, go to his kids' uh, college fund. Uh, it's an exciting time to be talking about libertarianism today, of all days. Um, I don't know about how you folks feel, but I have to confess I have a little bit of a hangover. Uh, I haven't been sleeping well because of various things that have happened. Perhaps some of you share my feelings, perhaps some of you don't. Um, but it does seem to me that right now is an important time for friends of limited government to be thinking about what the overall political strategy now might be a time in which a certain rethinking or um, reconsideration of political alliances and general modes of pre presentation um, uh, is an activity that we ought to be engaged in. Um, I consider myself a classical liberal, which is not exactly the same thing as a libertarian, but comes from uh, pretty much the same neighborhood. So um, I guess what I'd like to do today is first tell you what I like about this book, and then I'm going to uh, mention some things that I wasn't entirely on board with. Um, since it is a book form, we should have some diversity of opinion up here. Um, 
Uh, I think uh, Jason uh, summarized the book well, I th and I think uh, Aaron also uh, indicated the basic character of the book, that it's uh, meant to provide a kind of primer to uh, on libertarianism to both libertarians and non-libertarians. Um, it's meant to make libertarianism a plausible view to people who might be inclined to think that it's a Neanderthal view. Um, and I think that it does its job quite well. Uh, I think it uh, presents the basic issues. It presents the, the questions that a person might have. So on that score, I recommend it. Um, I am uh, want to also uh, talk about Jason's particular brand of libertarianism, which uh, you may know is called Bleeding Heart Libertarianism, thanks to the blog that Jason hosts. Um, he also calls it neoclassical libertarianism. I'm not inclined to try to adjudicate between all the different forms of classical liberalism versus hard libertarianism versus neoclassical liberalism on the principle that it's better not to get involved in other people's family fights. Um, but there is something that's important about uh, bleeding heart libertarianism that I want to say. Uh, bleeding heart libertarianism is the, is the idea that uh, social justice is maybe... Uh, one, maybe the best argument for libertarianism. Um, and as Jason rightly points out in the book, this is not exactly a new idea. It's really going back to the kinds of arguments that you got from the original generation of liberals, people like Adam Smith and John Locke and David Hume. Um, I think it's a good thing. I th welcome it um, for a, a number of reasons. Uh, first, because it allows libertarians to have a coherent and snappy answer to people who accost them on the street. Um, that's no small virtue. Uh, more importantly, though, I think uh, it says something that libertarians have long actually really believed, but for some reason that I'm not entirely clear on, and I'm not sure that Jason is entirely clear, in the book at least, on why this part was not as clearly emphasized um, by the so-called hard libertarians. Um, when John Locke says in the Second Treatise of Government that a king in America is fed, clad, and lodged worse than a day laborer in England, he's not just bragging, right? He really is trying to establish what the standard by which liberal democracies are, are to be judged. And if liberal democracies don't live up to that standard, then uh, they're rightfully critiqued by their own principles. So uh, as I regard it, I see bleeding heart libertarianism as recovering a certain kind of moral core to libertarianism. It's not that it wasn't there before in all the different phases, but it wasn't emphasized as much or wasn't emphasized in the same way. Okay. I think that it's, uh, it's a good thing because I think it allows libertarians to speak more directly to the heart of the public debate that's out there. Um, if you think just on a rhetorical level, I'm a political scientist, I don't know about all these philosophical answers, but I know on a rhetorical level, it's easier to persuade people if you start by saying something about the common good. It would be good for us to do this, for all of us, for the X, Y, and Z reasons, rather than saying, I've got a right, darn it, don't take this money out of my pocket because all taxation is theft. Right? Those two arguments play very differently. So my hope is, and, uh, and I we'll see how Jason does in the future. My hope is that this is really the beginning of a certain kind of mainstreaming of libertarian thought, which doesn't mean dumbing down or compromising or anything like that, but it does mean uh, speaking more clearly to the, per to the concerns of the public at large. Okay? So, and one might think uh, that the country needs classical liberalism now more than ever. Um, now, uh, after uh, what looked like the best chance to repeal Obamacare is passed. 
um, we are in a, in a situation in which it pays, we, we're gonna have to think hard about what exactly is it that we want and what should we want out of uh, our healthcare system, out of our welfare system. Uh, Jason's version of libertarianism has a big part to, uh, a big contribution to make to that conversation. I wanna mention one thing, uh, one aspect of the Obamacare situation that I think builds on an insight of classical liberalism. It's not one that Jason mentions explicitly in the book, but it is one that I think is in deep sympathy with the kind of outlook that he makes. And uh, the observation is this, that you know, the early modern liberals looked around and they saw uh, states that all had state religions, established religions. Why is an established religion bad? Well, it might be bad because of people having natural rights that nobody should be forced to worship in a way that they don't believe. That's one set of arguments, and it's a good set of arguments. But there's another political argument, which is that if you have a state religion and you have a fundamental diversity of moral opinions, if you've got Catholics on the one side and Protestants on the other side, right, and everybody has to go through a single institution, if people take their religion seriously, they have to fight. They have to fight. So the early classical liberals said, well, the solution to that is get the state out of the religion business, right? If we don't have to all be part of the same uh, boat, right, we, don't, we don't have to fight about all this, okay? I wanna suggest that one thing that we ought to think about when we think about Obamacare and the healthcare system in general is that for us, Obamacare is becoming something like our state religion, right? Not in the sense that we all have to worship, but in the sense that we all have to agree, right? So we saw this already in a certain way uh, with regard to the contra contraception controversies that happened in the past year or so. I think we're gonna see it in a much bigger way once people start saying things like, well, abortion is legal, abortion is a medical service, maybe we ought to have publicly funded abortions, right? Once that happens, the possibilities of social strife increase immeasurably, okay? And for that reason, that's, I think, a, a, a reason to say maybe we shouldn't have a system in which we all have to agree about things that we know there are fundamental moral disagreements about, okay? It seems to me that if you take that seriously, uh, it raises, uh, allows us to make a political observation. Uh, I wonder what Jason will think about this. But it suggests that social conservatives might well be a certain kind of ally in the battle for limited government in the years going forward, right? Maybe they're not allies on other issues, but they might be allies on this big issue, right? So, and that might have something to do with how we think about what does, what is the political strategy for limited government in the years to come? That's not an easy question to answer. But uh, the observation about do we all have to agree and does Obamacare mean that we all have to agree makes that kind of question an important one for when we think about this strategy going forward, okay? So um, that's, uh, for all these reasons, I think it's really important that the point of view that Jason represents is out there in the world and that it's being debated. We might not agree about all the details, but it's, that's the fight that we as a country need to be having, and it will be a better fight if people like Jason have more to say and are more a part of the public debate. All that said, I'm not entirely on board with Jason's approach to some of these questions. 
And I suppose my difference might be, I mean, probably there's some policy differences. I don't think those are the most important things. I think the difference is more of a methodological difference. And I may be wrong about this. Jason may correct me, so I look forward to the discussion. Uh, it seems to me that Jason is really coming from a place where the, the mode of discourse is moral philosophy, right? Where you are trying to establish certain foundations for moral philosophy that you will then use to interpret uh, all that massive empirical data that's out there. And there's good reasons to do this. There's good reasons within the academy. The moral philosophers on the left have really held the commanding heights of Harvard and Princeton and all of those places. Not Brown, but other places. Um, there is a sense that you get when you read the bleeding heart libertarianism that the ambition is to beat Rawls on his own territory, right? So you read John Tomasi, who's a friend of Jason Brennan's, and Tomasi really wants to make the case on moral foundational grounds, right? If you start from Rawls, you ought to be here at Cato rather than over at Center for American Progress, right? <laughs> now, I don't know if that's gonna work. I'm not a moral philosopher. I'd be interested in the empirical test of have you ever actually converted one single living Rawlsian <laughs> to libertarianism? That seems to me would be the, you know, the, uh, where the, you know, the pedal hits the road or the rubber hits the road. Um, but I do know that I, I'm dubious about the ability of moral philosophy in general to settle some of these foundational disputes. Um, just as for my own sake, I'm a political scientist, but what do I know? I'm not the, the, you know, the brightest person, in, the brightest bulb in the chandelier. Um, but I do know from the outside, debates between moral philosophers often take on the character of um, small battles between sects of rival monks, each with their own esoteric jargon. From the outside, you say, somebody's gonna win this. Once in a while, you can tell some, one team is playing this better than the other, but you're never entirely sure what's at stake or what, on what grounds you would decide these things. Um, and it strikes me that there's a real contrast here, and, and this, Jason may disagree with this, so I look forward to having a discussion. It's a real contrast here with the mode of approaching these issues that you find in the classical liberals like David Hume and Adam Smith. Right? They really present themselves as political scientists or political economists first and foremost. That they start by being engaged with a concrete particular and they, then they try to show you, well, if you really take all of this, the parts of the situation into account, you ought to be in favor of liberty, right? They don't start with, I've got a moral premise up here that then determines everything else that I'm trying to do, okay? So um, it seems to me that that basic orientation uh, of starting with the concrete has, really has something going for it, that it really has, speaks to, um, let's say, undecided swing voters in Ohio, maybe in a way that the high moral philosophy doesn't really. So I'm not saying don't do the moral philosophy, don't try to convince those Rawlsians. I'm just not sure that that's the most important task from the point of view of winning the conversation in the country as a whole, okay? So that's my, that's my question. Uh, and I wanna give an example, just to make this personal, uh, of exactly what I mean. Jason, at one point in the book, Jason makes the sensible point that if you really care about alleviating poverty across the world, as opposed to just caring about the people who happen to be in the country that you're born in, you ought to support open borders. Since people from poor countries, if people from poor countries can make far more money in rich countries, even if they're doing jobs that we may find ugly or demeaning um, than they could in their home countries, we're doing them an injustice by not allowing them to do that, right? He supports that argument with a thought experiment which he says, let's say that there's a character named Starving Marvin, 
right? Who's in a, a country that has a bad regime, he can't get work, uh, he can't do anything to support himself. Um, and he wants to come to your country to engage in mutually beneficial trades, right? Jason says that if you stop him at the border using coercion, and the state is always using coercion, um, and he goes home and he dies, his blood is on your hands, right? You are responsible for his death. Maybe you didn't pull the trigger, but you're still responsible for his death, okay? Um, it seems to me that this reminds me a lot of the kind of argument that you got from the left a couple of years ago, especially when you're talking about healthcare. If you ever said anything like, well, maybe there should be more uh, consideration of cost in healthcare, people on the left would say, good heavens, if there's consideration of cost, then some poor person will have to go without care, and that person will die in the street, and his blood will be on your hands, right? That was the sort of position. And that argument always felt like it was really bullying, right? That it was saying, you know, you're this awful person if you're bringing up a perfectly legitimate consideration, right? These things are complicated. Um, so that kind of argument didn't seem, at least back then, it didn't seem to fly, okay? So it's a question I would raise with Jason, right? That kind of argument still seems to me to be a little bit bullying. Let me give you a counterexample. Uh, from Hume's case for commerce in the essays. Uh, in the essays, when Hume starts to make the, the case for commerce, he starts by addressing the sovereign, right, the state. And he says um, that a sovereign might ask, why should I allow free power, what I, or free commerce? What I really care about is gaining as much military power as I possibly can. Shouldn't I stay, if I'm a sovereign, calculating my rational self-interest, and I'm interested in having a biggest, a biggest army as possible, shouldn't I try to convert the state into an armed camp like Sparta, where everyone's in the army all the time and we're ready to go to war? And Hume says, well, no, actually. If you want to have a big army, you ought to have free commerce, because then people engage in trade. They will uh, start to um, uh, they'll be, uh, start to gain wealth. There'll be lots more resources. And at any time, if you ever need to go into war, Mr. Sovereign, then you can always convert that into military power, right? That's his initial argument for commerce. It appears to be, maybe it is, simply a realpolitik or an amoral argument for commerce, right? That's the way the argument gets started. Then, if you keep reading on in the essays, it starts to turn out the situation is a little bit more complicated. Right? It starts to turn out that there are these consequences, these results, unintended consequences of commerce. You start to have people become part of the middle class. They start to want to boss themselves around. They're tired of having guilds and priests and barons boss them around. Right? And eventually, they start to want political power. And if you keep reading the essays, sooner or later, you get a big middle class that says, we're going to assert power, and we want to have the parliament be the most powerful thing. Right? And so we want to limit the power of the king. We might even kill the king. Right? That's what they did in England. Hume neglects to mention this little fact in his case to the sovereign, that allowing commerce to be free sets off a chain of reaction, a chain of events that predictably will lead to a place where the power of the king is limited and the king himself might get killed. Okay? Um, it's really an amazing, subtle piece of argumentation. Now, why do I bring this up? I don't bring this up because I think we ought to have an argument to people that will, that will present something in one light and then later on get them killed. But I do think there's an important rhetorical point that when you're trying to persuade someone, you don't start out with a big moral claim. You've got to start out where they are. You've got to start out with their own sense of their own self-interest. 
and try to show how you get from there to where you think they should be. Right? In the end, Hume's argument is not an amoral argument. It's an argument in the cause of liberty. Right? But he's trying to give the argument to the sovereign that the sovereign can understand that's going to end up in the right place. And it seems to me that when we think about the cause of liberty in the country as a whole, that's a really important insight for how we present the kinds of arguments that both Jason and I think are, the country ought to be presented with. Okay? Um, and, um, and it seems to me that under our circumstances, we have to start from the problems that we have and the problems that we're in. Right? I think, so if we, I don't know, I, I, when I started this, uh, thinking about this talk, I said to myself, I swear I'm not going to mention the name of Mitt Romney. Uh, so, so far, I've been able to do that. Um, but when we think about this question, I think we really have to think about how do we make the arguments for classical liberalism to the vast middle class, right? It seems to me that people who are interested in limited government, that all too often the argument really is something like this, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, right? On policy grounds, there might be a lot of reasons for that. Right? But the way that that plays, it doesn't sound like it's addressing the things that the vast middle class sees itself as needing addressed. And most especially, this whole ugly mess of a thing that we call healthcare. It was a mess long before Obamacare, right? So Obamacare is only you know, a, a much later kind of consequence of that. So um, I, my recommendation, I'm not sure if Jason will want to take it, my recommendation is that we need more of the spirit of the political economist. We need more of the spirit of the, of the political scientist that starts from the concrete and tries to show how arguments for liberty um, address the concerns of the people that are out there. Um, and perhaps, uh, given the results of the recent election, that ought to be addressed especially to Hispanic voters. Um, it seems to me that the spirit of bleeding heart libertarianism is exactly right. It's starting in exactly the right place. That starting from a, a point of view that's morally informed, but that cares about the, the details of the argument and the empirical facts on the ground um, is, is the right place to begin. Um, I think the way to describe it is morally informed, but fundamentally empirical and zetetic in the sense of seeking, of trying to find, because we don't know all the answers, right? I think that's a crucial insight of classical liberalism. Bleeding heart libertarianism seems to me takes the first step towards reconnecting the classical liberal tradition with the needs of our country in our time and place. Right? Now I think we need to take the second step. Thanks a lot. Thanks to all three. That was great. Now let's go to hearing from you, uh, as you may know from Cato Forums. Uh, please wait to be called on about the questions. Uh, and wait for the microphone, and that's because everyone in the room can't hear you, and particularly out uh, the streaming uh, online will not uh, come across. And if you could announce your name and affiliation, if you want to direct the question to one of our panelists or the other, also mention that. Let's start over here right on the left. I will try to get to everyone. Thank you. My name is Georges Mihais from Phoenix Partnership. Um, two questions. Yeah. Two questions. First, how do you evaluate the impact of technologies, in particular information technologies, which are expected to empower individuals, and the individuals can become even makers of good, not just click online? What is the impact of those technologies in your view? Second question, uh, have you researched 
libertarianism in former communist countries in Europe. Thank you. Um, I, I tended to focus this book on American politics. Um, there's like one question, there's a couple questions about uh, international affairs and libertarianism in other countries and uh, the growth of think tanks and so on there. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about, about how, what percentage of people in uh, Eastern Europe are now becoming libertarian and what do they think about it and what are the effects of that there, just because I thought the audience for the book isn't going to be that concerned with that for whatever reason. Um, the question about technology is a, is a complicated one. I mean, I, there's a lot of different spins I could take on even interpreting what you mean by that. Um, one thing I think that technology is good for is people, right now we have a very free internet where people can kind of do what they want and it's largely unregulated and people see kind of spontaneous creation. And part of this is that we're moving towards what you might call a personalized economy. We're moving away from this kind of economy where we're all working for a large corporation in a factory and uh, there's a hierarchical structure. We're moving to a more open thing where more and more people can be some sort of entrepreneur, some sort of self-creative individual. And I think, uh, that will be good for libertarianism because people don't want government intrusion onto that. They want it to remain free and wild. And then, you know what? Part of the internet is that there aren't guarantees on the internet. When you give people freedom, they do a lot of bad things, such as trolling, right? Um, or you know, posting posting dumb reviews of my my book on uh, the ethics of voting. Like when someone gave it one star, that person was out to lunch. It's a great book. She had five stars. Um, you know that kind of stuff. They do dumb and bad things, but people say, you know what? I want to allow the dumb and bad things to happen because the overall effect of allowing bad things to happen is that good things happen, and the effect of only allowing good things to happen is that good things don't happen. So I think uh, technology, I think technology is implicitly making an argument for libertarianism for us. Um, that might not be exactly what you're getting at, but that's that's the way that's the thing that came to my head when you said that. Woman right down front here. Sorry to have to point, by the way, but it's, it's the lights are very bright too. We can barely see you. So. Uh, hi, my name is Molly Alarcon. I'm from California. Uh, I, I liked the point about starting on the co in, in a concrete example and then sort of tracing back to the moral argument. So, uh, Professor Brennan, I'd like to give you a chance to do that. Um, an issue that strikes me as very problematic in our country right now is a lack of equal opportunity, <coughs> excuse me, uh, particularly structural racism, mm -hmm. right? People don't have equal opportunity in our country. And I'd like to hear about how libertarianism could actually make society more equal in yeah. terms of opportunity and dismantle structural racism, if you think that's possible. Yeah, good. I have a, I have a couple questions on that uh, in the book about historical racism and racism in general and discrimination. And um, uh, there's a lot to be said about it. I won't be able to address all of it. But one thing is that Gary, have you heard of Gary Becker? He's an economist who argued that markets punish discrimination. Markets make discrimination come at, yourself, come at the expense of your self-interest because uh, if, like, for example, suppose I have, most people have a preference not for hiring black people. Well, then black people will get a lower wage in the market. Now, I can then hire them more cheaply because of that. And if I want to maximize my own profits, I get an incentive to do so. And this isn't just, and so you punish people, like the market tends to punish people for having a taste for discrimination. And this isn't just speculation from Becker's part. I talk about some examples in the book. Uh, Jennifer Roback did um, um, a bunch of empirical research on what was happening with Jim Crow in the South. And what she found was, uh, you know, the Jim Crow laws had to be imposed because companies like 
private business owners weren't willing to discriminate. They didn't want to put in separate counters. They wanted to hire blacks and so on, and they had to be forced not to. There are a number of laws that made it really difficult to hire them, such as anti-vagrancy laws that said that they had to be employed all the time, or um, uh, laws that said you could only compete for black laborers for one month out of the year, otherwise you're not allowed to do that, or you can't even try to get them to come to another state. Um, or in South Africa, apartheid kind of grew up because white um, miners, like white mining company owners, wanted to hire blacks because they were lower, la like lower labor costs, and then the uh, the whites came forward and like pushed these laws that, that forbade them from doing that. In the South, uh, when whenever some a politician was sort of anti Jim Crow, he was always accused of being in the pocket of streetcar owners because the economics of streetcars strongly went against having uh, separate. It was just very expensive to have separate uh, cars for everybody. Um, so beyond that, uh, so I think there's, the market has a tendency to punish discrimination. And I think a lot of the stuff we do, we, I, I think there's deep structural inequality in, in the US. I think it's really bad. And I think a lot of the things that we do cause that and exacerbate that. Like, so why are inner cities so blighted? And I wanna blame, it's not the only thing that's causing this. Part of it is the, just the after effects of historical injustice. And there's a real hard question about how we remedy that. Um, and that might perhaps require some, some redistribution. I mean, Robert Nozick says, uh, you know, famous hard libertarian says, look, if you have, start with the just, just beginnings, just origins, and then um, everything proceeds for people making voluntary transfers and there's no injustice, then whatever inequality results is okay. You know? But he says, the actual world that we live in is not the product of past libertarian transfers. We live in a world marred by historical injustice. And in that kind of world, it might, require, it, it might just require some redistribution to fix things. That said, there's a lot of stuff that we do that make things worse. I think the drug war is really terrible. I think the drug war is the main cause, or at least one of the main causes, of why inner cities are so bad. You've created a system where lots of people are going to expect to go to jail, and they grow up around other people going to jail, and there's low social capital because of that. And then we make people stuck in going to lousy inner city schools where people aren't, um, they don't, they're not hanging around people with higher social capital and uh, education and things aren't prized as much. And so I think we do a lot of things like direct, with the goal of helping people that actually have the, the exact opposite effect of hurting the most vulnerable members of our society. Um, there's a lot more to be said about that. I can just say that there's like at least four questions in the uh, second half of the book that kind of deal with that. I mean, the kind of structure of the book is it, it starts off from the abstract and gets to the concrete. And so almost like if, you wanna, if you're worried about the kinds of concerns that Tom's bringing up, read the, the last few chapters first and then go backwards. Uh, Aaron and Tom should feel free to chime in if you want to on these questions. Uh, I sort of, gentlemen in middle, right here. Wait for the mic here, please. Yes, right there. Hi, my name is uh, Steve Hank, and I have no affiliation. I'm just a retired uh, uh, person who comes to Cato all the time. Uh, I I want I heard you mention the the concepts of social justice, and uh, and community, and this is a pet peeve of mine that. People don't define what they mean by this, and they don't define particularly the concept of community. For me, community means people that I deal with, people that I have some interaction with or, or know, um, people that exist on the other part of the world are, are just an abstraction, are just an abstraction from my point of view. Um, 
I don't, and I think that it's almost a religious belief. You have to have faith that you're somehow connected to all of humanity. That's really a faith. It's almost like, it's more like a religion in my opinion. So my point is that for me, um, this idea of social justice and that libertarians believe in social justice, I believe that we have an individualistic notion of that only individuals act. And from that, I, I derive the idea that to me, I'm only concerned about the social justice of people in my community. And I think uh, Murray sort of has these kind of concepts of community. He points out that, you know, like, your real community is the people around you, not the, not the, not even the people uh, throughout the country, and uh, so I, I wanted you to speak a little bit to this notion that you think that libertarianism should have uh, embodied in it social justice. I would say social justice in the in the sense of the local community is what I'm trying. What I would advocate. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Um, good. There are a lot of questions there, and I wonder can we can we call the slides back up? Because I have a, a slide with a definition of uh, social justice on it. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to it. Just Kevin hears us. Yep. Okay. Where's the clicker? Oh, sorry. All right. Let's see. All right, so here's the operating definition of social justice. Here's the operative definition of social justice that most philosophers are using. The idea is that we are living in among other people and we have various moral norms that we demand that they respect. Like simple things like, I want you to drive on the right side of the road or um, what counts as property, what the rules are for property, when you can intrude on somebody else's property and not, um, all sorts of rules that are just out there that people are living by, right? And if you're going to make demands of other people, I demand that you respect my property. I demand that you respect this. I demand that you obey these norms and not other norms. Um, it's not reasonable to ask them to do that unless they have a stake in those rules. And if people are systematically disadvantaged by those rules, it's unreasonable. So if there were a certain set of property institutions, and there's lots of different, like the, the rules for property are not written in the fabric of the moral universe. They're conventions. There's a lot of different ways that conventions can go. Even questions like how high above your land does it count as your property? If an airplane passes above your, your house, does that count as a trespassing or not? These are kind of conventional questions. There's lots of different ways of answering them. And when we're thinking about how we're supposed to answer these things, we should answer them in a way that benefits most people, that gives people a stake in them. If people were systematically disadvantaged and they didn't have a stake in them, if their lives were going to be miserable and poor, if markets worked the way Marxists think they do, then it wouldn't be reasonable to demand people abide by those institutions. That's, that's the idea of social justice. And when I look at most libertarians, I go, they're, that's what they think too. They, the reason they spend so much time arguing that markets work in a certain way and help the poor and so on is because they buy, they accept this, that under normal conditions, course of institutions must be sufficiently uh, to every innocent person's benefit. Now, beyond that, you're talking about questions of, uh, of 
of say who's in your community. And I agree with you. Like I think that most people in the world are strangers. I think I'm not. I'm not a nationalist even. I think most Americans are strangers. I have very little in common with people in your typical person in California as opposed to say your typical person in Ontario. Like some people are within my immediate community. And I think under some circumstances you acquire stronger moral obligations, stronger moral obligations to some rather than others. I owe my kids more than I owe John. And I, I kind of owe John more than I owe like a random stranger. College education. You know, I owe my students more than I owe other people. Um, so there's a lot to be said for like when it comes to duties of benevolence, like sometimes I have those duties are stronger towards people that are in my immediate circle than to distant people. Um, how does that factor into coercive institutions? Uh, I think when I think of politics, I mean, politics is never simply affecting your immediate community. It's always affecting large groups of people who are strangers to one another. And so there doesn't seem to be a real argument for favoritism towards the locals. I mean, when I talk about the issue of immigration, um, I, I do start off by making this metaphor of, you know, Starvin Marvin is going to the market and you show up with a gun and kick him out, like make him walk away. And then he starves and dies. It's your fault he died. You're not like a person who, you're not simply like a person who sees a beggar on the street and refuses to give him change. Rather, you're like a person who sees a beggar being paid to wash a car by somebody and you scare him away before he gets his money. You're actively harming him. Not simply failing to help him, but actively harming him. And then one of the arguments people make is, well, we should favor people in our country. Um, they matter more. We're more in a community. And I go, are we? I mean, they're strangers to me too. Californians are strangers. If there's going to be an argument that I own anyone a kind of a special debt, it's not going to be America. It's going to be Hudson, New Hampshire that educated me or, fair, or you know, Lake Barcroft, Virginia, that, you know, where I live now and they're, the rule, like they're live, driving on those roads. It's not going to be America or something like that. Um, so I, I see us all as strangers, and we should favor, and, and I should favor people in the third world rather than Americans because they're more desperate. If I'm going to care about, if I'm going to care about some people, I'm going to care about the most desperate people rather than relatively rich people. Do you want to say? So I want to have a follow-up question here uh, because we talked about the United States, Denmark, and so on. Uh, take, for example, one, the tripartite. Uh, uh, welfare state in the United States, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Of the, the best, uh, the one that has the fewest debts and unfunded liabilities is Social Security. And for everyone alive today, and it's been promised Social Security, there's a $17 trillion difference between what uh, they will pay in and what they are expected to get out. So that's $17 trillion that's going to come from someone else uh, unless taxes are raised somehow to cover it. But much of it will be covered from someone else. So is that legitimate under libertarian uh, uh, principles? And would it be a big difference if the unfunded liability was, say, a billion dollars rather than 17 trillion? I mean, I don't think there's uh, any one libertarian answer to that. I mean, there are going to be some libertarians who think that's clearly bad. Um, and there are going to be others who think, well, no one's going to say like having a $17 trillion debt is okay, but they might say a billion dollars is, is okay. So there are some libertarians, I mean, let's go back to classical liberals. Most classical liberals did not think that the welfare state was inherently evil. They were very pragmatic about this, in part because they were embracing something like, like a norm of social justice. Um, they thought, if that's what it takes to make sure some people don't fall behind and that they have a stake in the system, if that turns out empirically to be the case, and it's an empirical question, if it does, then they're willing to embrace that. They're willing to have certain kinds of social insurance programs. Similarly, some bleeding heart libertarians are too. Now, there are also bleeding heart libertarians who endorse um, all the stuff about social justice and they're market anarchists. And there are others that are minimal status. And there are others that will look favorably upon the institutions of Denmark where you have a lot of high degree of economic freedom, um, but you also have uh, 
um, the programs of social insurance, and they work pretty well. I mean, I have a, I have a particular view, and I'm writing uh, the, the book after this. I'm writing a book on compulsory voting right now, but the book after that will be one that will do a lot of democracy bashing and talking about the badness of politics. And one of the things that we'll be saying is that legitimacy of government institutions depends on competence. It's not the only thing it depends on, but it's one of the things it depends upon. If government institution, like I am owed by government competent and competence and good faith, and if government is not competent or acts doesn't act in good faith, then it loses its right to do certain things. And so if we have in the U.S. the social, uh, social security is being run incompetently, then that delegitimizes the institution. On the other hand, if it's being run competently somewhere else, it, that doesn't tend to delegitimize it. So Denmark does a good job with it, and maybe that it has less of a complaint against Denmark than we have here in the U.S. where it's not done properly. Gentlemen on the aisle, and we'll be back over here. Hello, I am Mario from Argentina. You mentioned on a slide about the, the unfair or concerning the unfair relation between big business and uh, governments. You mentioned the Demo Democratic Party. And there, there was no mention to the other party. Mm -hmm. You forget it, or they are different? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, it's a rhetorical thing. Like, everyone blames the Republicans, and the Republicans are to blame. And then, like, the Democrats, I, I mean, a lot of my friends are Democrats. So, you know, my colleagues are Democrats, and so on. And they're like, the Republicans caused all this. And it's like, yeah. Um, and, and keep your point, blaming finger out and point it at them. It's just don't put it away so quickly. After you're done blaming them, just do one of these, right? Because they're at fault, too. To say, like, look, the Republicans are the, are the party of crony capitalists, and the Democrats are, too. I don't know which one's more to blame. I don't know which one's more like Hitler and which one's more like Mussolini here, right? But there is to say, you're both at fault. You caused this. Stop congratulating yourself. We told you so. We said, like, James Buchanan 50 years ago was saying, this is what's going to happen if you have these policies. You're already doing it. And it's going to happen more. And they went, oh, wait a minute. Your, your argument, James Buchanan, doesn't flatter my ideology. It's bad for me if you're right. So blah, 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 blah. I won't listen, right? And they didn't listen. And he was right. And they were wrong. Um, it's time for them to take responsibility. It's time for them to say, you know what? We're at fault for crony capitalism in America. We need to fix it. And they're not going to, but it's time, it's time for them to. Last question, gentlemen on the aisle right there. Wait, and then we should go eat lunch. Thank you, for Professor Brennan. Uh, Richard Ranger, I'm with API, but my question's my own. Early in your talk, you said that libertarians, or at least some libertarians, or at least you, acknowledge government does some things capably and does some things poorly. The markets do some things capably, some things poorly, so that it's a balance. It's not pure market. Um, where in the scheme of libertarianism do you consider what's been defined as the principle of subsidiarity? In other words, that certain decisions made collectively ought to be done at a level appropriate to the decision. When done not at that level, they are often done poorly or more coercively or more inefficiently. Um, and I guess Professor Merrill does a classical liberal have a different answer than Professor Brennan made? Um, I guess I guess there's no like summary answer to that. Uh, I, mean, I, I said you, may, you heard me a second ago talking about the idea that um, we're owed competence by government and that's one of the things I'm going to be arguing in a future book and I have some articles on this already and part of that what they'll mean is having things done at the appropriate level. Um, if uh, to, to be get competence might mean that you need to scale things up or scale things down. Uh, and so I, I agree with that principle. Um, I don't think there's any, like you and I might disagree empirically about when certain decisions can be made um, at certain levels, but I don't, I, I accept the idea of it. 
So, uh, I mean, it seems to me that the, you know, the obvious answer is the empirical question, like what, at what level does it actually work? Um, but there's, a, there's another answer on this question of subsidiarity, and, and one thinks about the arguments that someone like Tocqueville makes in Democracy in America, and it's not exactly a competence argument that it's better to have things done at the local level because they're going to get it right. It's much more of a it's kind of a utilitarian argument that it's better for them. They have, um, they're forced to argue with each other. They're forced to come out of their shells. They're forced to have certain kinds of conversations that are better for the overall political health of the country than to have some agency in, in Washington do it for them. Um, so it's a quite different, I mean, he says the same thing about juries, right? Juries might get all the decisions all, all wrong all the time, but uh, it's a, still a good thing that we have juries because it sort of keeps people engaged and it's one way that people have a check on especially criminal justice in the country. So that's the kind of question that I would ask, not the, you know, the competence. Obviously, that's an important one, but you know, there are other considerations as well. We're going to have lunch now, uh, and the lunch will be held on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is up the spiral staircase at this end of the building. As you go, the restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. There's uh, Jay's book is outside and will be available to be signed, and I think maybe upstairs to be signed. Uh, you can talk to him at lunch about it some, if you have additional questions. But uh, before we go, I wish you would join me in thanking our speakers today. Thank you.